Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Matthew Ronay. His work is the subject of two exhibitions now at American museums. The Blaffer Art Gallery at the University of Houston is showing an eponymous survey of Ronay's work. Curated by Blaffer director Claudia Schmuckley, it's on view through October 1st. The Perez Art Museum Miami, the place formerly known as the Miami Art Museum, is showing a Ronay installation in its project space through January 15th, 2017. It was curated by Diana Nawi. Rone was included in the 2013 Lyon Biennial and has also been in group shows at Sculpture Center in New York, Sheeran Kunsthal in Frankfurt, the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas City, and the Socrates Sculpture Park in Long Island City. His work is in the collections of MoMA, LACMA, the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Henry Art Gallery, and more. The second segment will be an excerpt from my 2015 conversation with Arlene Sheckett, who at the time had a mid-career survey at the Institute of Contemporary Art, Boston. Now, the Frick Collection in New York City has asked her to curate an installation of works from a promised collection of Royal Meisen porcelain and to include her own work in the show. But first, Matthew Ronay, after the break. Get up close and personal with Sculpture from Antiquity in the Getty's newest digital publication, Ancient Terracotta from South Italy and Sicily. In the ancient world, terracotta was a readily available and economical alternative to stone. Explore the Getty Museum's collection of terracotta in vivid detail. Zoom in, give it a 360-degree spin, and learn the backstories of these stunning ancient masterworks. Visit getty.edu publications to learn more. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents High Society, the Portraits of Franz X. Winterhalter, celebrating the elegance and unrivaled brilliance of the renowned portraitist of 19th century European aristocracy. Some 45 master paintings are complemented by clothing created by sought-after fashion designer Charles Frederick Worth and his contemporaries. Now on view. Visit mfah.org slash high society for more. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2016, a, the, though, only the third biennial of artists working throughout Los Angeles. Organized by Hammer curator Ara Moshayeti and the Renaissance Society's Hamza Walker, Made in LA 2016 features the work of 26 artists. Occupying the entire Hammer Museum, the exhibition includes condensed monographic surveys, comprehensive displays of multi-year projects, the premiere of new bodies of work and newly commissioned works from emerging artists. Find details at hammer.ucla.com Edu. Made in LA 2016, a, uh, the, though, only. On view June 12th through August 28th at the Hammer Museum. And we're back. Matthew Ronay, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. Your sculptures are a strikingly direct mix of color, form, and texture. And by that, I mean that each of those things holds its own makes up kind of 33.3 percent of what i've seen in front of me which is striking to me because when i see say a john mccracken i see color and surface dominating and and kind of the other things come come next and and the same with say ken price liz larner carol Beauvais, all of whom for whom say form comes first so as i was saying your work not that and i want to talk about all three of those things but first do you start with any one of those three things when you when you sit down in your studio to work do you start with one thing and not the other the foundation of the forming of the imagery and the image vocabulary is drawing and so in fact the literally the studio is more of a production site for me than it is the a birthing process of course there's like a little bit of birth and that once i start making the sculptures but I would say probably, I don't know, seven-eighths of everything that I've ever made has been was a drawing to begin with. And so I suppose I start with the forms then, if to go with your question, I guess we would start with the forms. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Where do you draw? I draw in lately for like, when I say lately, like maybe the last three or four years, I draw in like little tiny sketchbooks. And I usually draw at home normally. I mean, sometimes I draw in the studio, but I would say it's much more rare. 
but I think I think like a lot of my research activity and thinking I do in my apartment and I feel really compelled when I'm at the studio to try to be working on something and then if I'm not working then I'm doing something wasteful like looking at the internet or something like that <laughs> so take me through the process of getting of, of how you get a drawing into a three-dimensional object well it's a lot of a lot of drawing and in, in the sense that it's like I never sit down to draw because I, I'm in the need of an idea I think I draw I draw way more than I could ever possibly produce. And I think the reason is, is that there's something for me like very necessary about just kind of bleeding out the creative desire. And so by that, I think, I mean, like it, I'm not searching for inspiration. I'm just like turning like the faucet of it on and letting it clear the line kind of. And so I think in that process, of course, there are some things that are more, that I'm more magnetized to. And those things, sometimes I don't, I, I just choose the drawing exactly as it was the first time I drew it. Sometimes I redraw them from memory if they were in a previous book that was like from a couple of weeks ago or something like that. Or, But once, I, once I've decided on the drawing of the thing that is interesting, that created interest in me, then I try to figure out how I can make it. And almost everything I've been working on for the last several years is made out of basswood. And so normally then that means I have to glue up a whole bunch of different pieces of, of wood in order to get the basic like block of, of wood that it's going to take to make a sculpture. And then from there, it's all pretty much a subtractive process, whether that's using a bandsaw or a grinder or just hand sanding or a palm carver or a dremel or something like that. And so then, so from that point, it's primarily subtraction. And then once the main carving is done, usually the parts are all separated and then I dye the parts and then I reattach all the parts and then I'm finished with the sculpture. You make it sound like going from two dimensions into three and determining scale are things you don't even think about. I really, it's weird. I think like I'm not, I'm not a person that ever experienced deep hallucination with drugs. It wasn't part of my experience using drugs, hallucinogens, but I feel like when I draw, I have a really, like there's an, a real sense of what the thing is like immediately. And so often I think I've referred to my drawings as doodles because it's not like that I use a lot of shading or that I have a graceful line like Matisse or, or Hans Bellmer or somebody like that, but that, but that there's something so not risky about the kinds of drawings that I make. It's not like if I do a bad one that it's uh, that I've invested, that I've lost time. And I think that over the years of kind of building up the vocabulary, I can see kind of what the thing is when I make it. When, it, when the drawing is made. And I guess, yeah, it's not something that I, that I, that I struggle with so much as, as the translation of the drawing to the actual sculpture. It's been that way for almost 20 years. Even the early works were, were done from drawing. You mentioned basswood a moment ago. I should have added that in other parts of the world, the same wood, the same tree goes by different names. In the UK, it's known as, as a lime tree. It's also known as linden. A lot of your forms seem to have twinned origins, origins that are equal parts biological and equal parts art historical. I'm, I'm a critic and historian dude, so those are terms in which I think. <laughs> you are a maker dude. Are those terms in which you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm, a, I'm definitely a fan of art history. I love collecting books, and, and I feel a kind of ravenous appetite for the information of what came before me. And so definitely art history is important. In terms of critique of art history, that's not something that I necessarily consider important to my practice. I feel that, that the conversation that I'm interested in is, is bigger than that, if that doesn't sound pretentious or but I think to to mesh that with the bio, the words of biology or science I think that those are things that I'm realizing are more and more important to me 
I think that, you know, it's as my work became more abstracted over the the years, I've I sometimes have struggled to understand how to talk about the work or, or from where to draw the meaning of it. And I, I've, I've started to feel more inspired and at least in a more comfortable area to think of it in terms of something empirical or maybe maybe I don't have the the written or verbal language to describe, but that I definitely am in concert with nature, whether living in this in New York City, I'm able to be out in nature all the time. I feel that maybe there's a kind of evolutionary intuitive sense that we have because we came from nature and that we're part of nature and that I've kind of come to believe that even the narratives of nature have impacted our our narratives and our artifice is inspired by nature even if it's in some sort of latent uh liminal you know secondhand unconscious way do you try to find forms that are kind of reproductive in their origin or illusion you know i'm thinking of a drawing such as 2rn1 which is a figure that feels like reproduction but isn't particularly human sexual i think there's a particular this is a really flat-footed way to explain this but I think there's something like particular about drawing that when you put two lines next to each other, you start to get a kind of tubular quality and that tubular quality then somehow like immediately like reverberates or like reflects or echoes some sort of bodily thing. So if it's not reproduction, it's respiratory or digestive or, or like even even something more microscopic or, you know, something, something like that. But I don't, I don't know necessarily if I search them out, but I feel like so much of my experience of the world is, is focused on my body, like and my emotions and how they affect my body or like, or, you know, how, how I experience my, my body when I'm working or, you know, stuff like that. And I think that although, in a, in a way, I think it's like such a pedestrian kind of experience and art to think about the body. I still really believe it's such an inspiring and fertile groundwork for thinking. So there are a number of works in which you play with something that either looks like it has its roots in the body or through its through what you've titled the artwork, it has its roots in the body. And, and something art historical. And for example, in the Blaffer show, there's a sculpture titled Penis Dwelling and Three Stretching Posts from 2013. And the body part's probably pretty obvious. The three stretching posts could, in theory, reference sex toys or Louise Bourgeois or Brancouche's Endless Column or indeed just plant life, flora. Are you interested in juxtaposing body and, and something more biological? within individual works or am I reading that totally wrong? No, I think you're, I think that was really apt description. I mean, I think I'm interested in the, in the body on a physical level, on a psychological level. I mean, for me, the title stretching post definitely referred to sex toys, but also as a kind of an object in which to use for visualization for the stretching of, of any quality, which could be attention span. uh, It could be length of breath. You know, it could be, you know, openness of mind. At the same time, it could definitely be the the diameter of the orifice, you know. And I think in terms of botany or biology, or you said biology, but I was thinking uh, when you said plant life, like I, w- I, I definitely feel that there's a mirroring like between, you know, plant life and, and human life and that there's all sorts of interesting kind of parallels to be drawn there in terms of, you know, the narrative of reproduction or, or the cycle of life or, or the different ways in which things fertilize, even if they fertilize themselves or there, or there's some sort of accidental fertilization or all those, all these kinds of scientific principles I find really interesting because, because with my, with my discipline of being an artist, I think it's, it's really fun to be irresponsible in terms of the, the way that I interpret science. And I find it really 
sometimes much more inspiring than philosophy, just in the sense that that in the end you're kind of thinking about something that actually is like physical and palpable and that you can look at it, that it's an object that, and that the nature of the way that it looks is something that, that we've been looking at for all the years that, that the human species is, has been conscious and looking at things on earth. We have all, and I like to think that we have all those years of inherited memory and participation with, with the fauna and with the plant forms and, weather and even things that we can't see that somehow we understand. I wanted to get it form a little bit by bringing up a couple of sculptures and seeing if you'd be willing to talk through how you got to the form that they take or took. One of them is hollow blue proboscis-sized member green sucking pouch from 2014. How did I do on that title? Pretty great. <laughs> We'll have an image of it on, on manpodcast.com. I'm an art history nerd. I see a bunch of art history references. You, you tell me what you were thinking through in, um, in getting to that form. Well, I mean, you know, so much of my, so much of my oeuvre is, is phallic in its nature. And so the, pro, the proboscis, I guess, is just a kind of masked term to refer to something that that is a protrusion, I guess. But I'm I'm very fascinated by mushrooms, penises, tongues, fingers. I like all the bits, warts, all the parts that stick off. I I I think just as a form, I, I've always really found that kind of thing fascinating. A tail, you know, even a, even hair, I feel like has a great quality as it sticks out. That they're a kind of an an antenna, and that they they have this quality of probing touching and going in and that all those things really really fascinated me but I also for me I also like really respond to microscopic like electron microscope photography and the quality in which it's kind of alien I also am a big Giger fan and I, I really feel like there's something about that particular work that has a kind of alien quality and it's the same quality that I'm sure people, you know, artists, illustrators that that do extraterrestrial life like are inspired by deep sea and how there's a certain quality of the deep sea that's alien because we can't participate with it and that it maybe doesn't have the same kind of narrative that terrestrial characters have. And so I think that that whole part is is in there. And then the, the second half of that piece is this tongue, this white tongue, or what I see as a tongue, that's kind of about, or that has these this stack of pills, or like ovoids that somehow are, are always, to me, are stand-in for some sort of knowledge, and their cairn-like quality, as if, metaphorically, they are the direction or something, and that there's, that there's some sort of battle going on between this other and and the self or something maybe that's a little bit pretentious but <laughs> no that's interesting because i had read them as rocks yeah well i'm I, I the stacking i think is something that i do a lot and i always have i've always or not always but like you know i really always think about the cairn and what the cairn is and how the cairn functions and how how the cairn is a functional object, but that there's something like so at, at its base quality, at its foundation quality is like something that people probably did also for fun to balance rocks or to make some sort of sculptural quality or to leave your mark somehow. And that I, I always, I always love to see the Karens on the trails and, and to, to know that they're also helpful or that, or that they somehow are guiding you and that, I don't know. I just, I just, I've always responded to Cairns and I think it's a really beautiful word too. And I think the more I thought about Cairns, the more I started to get interested in stacking. And I think, I think in a weird way, I think on, on another level, the stacking is a kind of surrealist trope and that it's like, you're putting like one thing on top of another, whether they actually go together or not was always, and my early work was always something that I really responded to like, putting a piece of pepperoni pizza on top of half of a cat, like something like that, I think is also a stacking kind of formal quality that I was always really in an early way drawn to. 
You, you mentioned Cairns. You've been making sculptures either of, with, or referencing Cairns since the 2000 aughts. Is it entirely an art historical reference to, to surrealism and such, or does it have orig origins in, in what Cairns are used for, which is trails and hiking? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, it definitely came, it definitely came to fruition in my mind as a complete, more complete investigation of the form through hiking. I'm not, I'm not able to hike as much as I want. I still walk a lot and I love walking and I think that hiking is, has been really fruitful endeavor for me. And I think it, when I started hiking up here in, in the New York state area was, was when I realized how impactful the form was to me because I had always been stacking, but when that I saw, when I saw that the stacking actually had this like great purpose and that it was something that people did to, to remind themselves or other people where to turn or where to go, it really like hit me. And I think on a secondary, I think I've always already mentioned this slightly, but I also always think of the cairn as some sort of antenna and that it's pointing outward to outer space. It always kind of hit me as some sort of universe kind of thing too, that it not only helped you understand like where you were on the earth, but somehow like what even though I know it's not technological, it's I always felt like it's sending a signal out as well, like a Stonehenge or something. So speaking of stacking, but in a different way, how important is Brancusha's Endless Column to you? I love the sculptures, and I think Endless Column maybe wouldn't be my my go to, but I mean I do I do really love that one. I think it's I think it's incredible, but I really I really love the pedestals and the and the the work the the stand or the thing that the sculpture sits on is part of the work. I think that that not only do I like to stack things like cairns, but I, especially over the last several years, the base of the sculpture has become something that that I get, that I kind of have fixated on. And I think my forms are a lot softer than some of his bases and something like endless column. But I definitely would say that he's a major inspiration for me. But maybe not that particular sculpture. I love the rooms in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. I think are those are amazing rooms of his, or that room is an amazing room. You did your undergrad at MICA in Baltimore, so you were certainly close to those those Brancusi rooms. And indeed, this you're part of a generation of sculptors that is more interested in doing something with the pedestal, Carol Bovet, for example, than than maybe the 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 two the minimalism and post minimalism generations before you. My guest is Matthew Ronay. We'll be right back after a break. The exhibition Dada Globe Reconstructed is now in member previews at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan and opens on Sunday, June 12th. In 1920, the poet and co-founder of Dada, Tristan Zara, invited more than 40 artists to participate in Dada Globe, an anthology meant to document the Dada movement and inspire new works by its participants. It was never published, and now, for the first time, the original Dada works that were meant to be in it have been reunited and are on view at MoMA. Seeing the publication reconstructed as Zara intended it to be is an exceptional experience. Learn more at MoMA.org. The Inner Circle Galleries at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. stretch more than 400 linear feet. For her largest work, Lynn Myers has made a monumental site-specific wall drawing that encircles the museum's second level. When Myers works nesting one line beside another, she welcomes and magnifies the imperfections that arise naturally from her process. Tiny ripples become waves that pulse with energy. Get more information at hershorn.si.edu and get caught in the current. And now back to my conversation with Matthew Rone. I, I see lots of references to, to Endless Column in your work, and one of them is Transmitter, a 2009 sculpture that's one of my absolute favorites. It kind of strikes me as a, as a, a tip of the cap to Brancouche, but also uh, you know a little bit of a middle finger look. I can stack form, your form, in a different way, and then, and then bind it up and then do other things with it. Is Transmitter substantially about that? Is there, is there something else there that I'm missing? No, I mean, I think, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not, as I said, I love art history, but I don't, I don't really 
I, I digest, I just digest it for pleasure, not for necessarily, it's not always an intellectual process for me. Like when I'm looking at art history, like I'm, I'm almost more fascinated by the things that speak to me that I wouldn't expect to speak to me, but in that particular, so I wouldn't think of it as a response to his sculpture, but I do think that there was something about that that form and that the the repeated those things actually were big staffs that had been cut down. I think it, if anything, maybe it's more it has more to do with Joseph Boys than than Brancusi, and that it that it's like that it's there's there. I always felt there was a in the same way that stacking has this mystical kind of quality. I feel like the 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 tying up of the sticks or the twigs also has this quality that's kind of mystical and that you're trying to gather up all this energy and place it into one spot. And that like, there's something about the, also in a, in the infinite column, like there's this quality in which the, the little sections like build up this, this idea of counting or of time or of marks or, or some sort of like thing that the seconds or the, the atoms or like all these things that have this great counting quality and that and that the closer you get them together the more you make this kind of bundle the greater the possibilities are of you having some actual energy and that somehow that energy then transfers to this other gold and that somehow then it's like like kind of like a post-apocalyptic satellite dish or something of that kind of nature i think of you as boisean in the same way i would think of pipilati reist as boisean which is to say pointedly and almost aggressively 180 degrees from and opposed so if you think of yourself as boisean could you please explain how <laughs> no i mean I, I you know i'm i don't think of myself as boisean but when i say that like i mean there's a i, I don't feel very social at all and i think that's the, in that aspect there's no way that i could be boisean but i think i guess what i meant by that was just that that there's a material quality to that work and that and that's one of the few works for me that I think that the the materials that the quality of the wood and the quality of the gold that they that they have a kind of they help direct you to the meaning of the piece and then I don't know exactly why I came up with boys but it was the first thing that came it was the first thing that came to mind when I thought about if there was an art historical Maybe it, it kind of has a, a vehicle-like quality, like one of his sleds, or I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's the palette. The the palette of transmitter is 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 very muted blacks, grays, golds. Well, speaking of palette, I wanted to talk about color next. I understand that you're colorblind. Yes. Do you see any color, or are you completely colorblind? Oh, I, I see color. And I, you know, if there was, if no one had told me that I was colorblind and I didn't have to communicate with anyone about color, I probably wouldn't have come to the conclusion that I was colorblind. But from an early age, once before I could read, my my mother found out that I was colorblind because I was constantly asking when I was drawing with the crayons, like, you know, what color is this? Is this green? Is this, you know? And and I I couldn't I couldn't learn the color. And so she thought maybe there was some developmental problem and uh, took me, but then thought maybe that I had been colorblind. My grandmother claimed to be colorblind, but she was very mischievous and I'm not, and no one, <laughs> no one, no one seems to really believe that she was, but. That's the most Boisean thing you've said. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I see color. I'm red, green, colorblind. So that the best way that I can explain it is to say that any colors that have red or green in them becomes semiotically confusing so that you and I can't agree on what to call them. I might say that, it, that it's purple. You might say that it's blue. And almost 100% of the time you would be right and I would be wrong. But I, I always just think of it as kind of a semiotic problem because I do see, I do see colors and I can differentiate between colors. It's just when particular colors are the same value and they're next to each other, especially it's, it, it is sometimes very hard for me to differentiate the color, the difference. And I think as a result that, you know, the, the reason that, that the colors I use are so bright is because those are colors that I see. That's how, in order for me to really feel the impact of the color, it, it, I have to have it be that saturated. Uh, that's interesting because it almost makes me wonder if there are, you ever make sculptures in which you play with the difficulty you have in seeing red and green. 
For example, in a piece such as Stems Topped by Sieve Plate from 2014, there is a blue disc-like form, uh, an irregularly shaped disc on greenish, I don't know, sticks. Worst worst description ever. <laughs> no, that's pretty good. <laughs> and I can almost maybe imagine that the greenish of the sticks would make it look like the blue plate might be hovering in a different way than it would be to somebody who sees colors in a so-called normal way. Could be. I mean, that piece for me, like, I, again, this is kind of a great example of colorblindness is that uh, to me, I, I consider the the sticks, as you call them, to be blue. Ah, because the, cause the we'll have an image on the website, but but no, but it's they're turquoise probably, but it's like turquoise to me, or they're different. There are different shades of blue. I actually don't really remember because I. But but this is the exactly the issue is that we can't agree on what color they are because I don't see the color very well in terms of like making an illusion. I don't know if it's so much that it makes an illusion, but it, but I definitely sometimes work within colors that are harder for me to see in an attempt to kind of strengthen the sense that's defective. So like I did a series of gouaches that were primarily purple and turquoise and because I'm red, green, colorblind, purple, since it has red in it, is difficult for me to, to, to tell when, it, when it's purple and when it when it turns from blue to purple is a very difficult moment for me to understand. And the same goes for turquoise. Like when it goes from being blue to being turquoise is also very hard for me to figure out. And so, and then vice versa on the other side of that, like when purple goes to being red is also very hard for me to tell. Or when turquoise goes to being green is also very hard for me to tell. So sometimes I work within those palettes frequently and that kind of like, in a weird way, I get my chops for those colors because I'm looking at them on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I can, I get familiar with the colors. But in the same way, if you have a second language that you don't use very often, if, if, if I stop looking at purple all the time, then I have to kind of like re-acclimate to purple. If that makes sense to you at all, I don't know. No, it does. And of course, as you're saying that, I'm looking at the sculpture Incubating Chimeric Zygotes from 2015 which uses only the colors you just referenced. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think it's it's hard for me to to see sometimes colors like in that in that piece that you're describing that relief like the the turquoise and the purple are almost the same value and so it's sometimes a piece like that can be disappointing for me in the end because I can't see there's no contrast between the two colors and so it's very hard for me to see that it's even doing something. So does that I don't know what the right word is to use here is. Does that challenge that you have with certain colors lead you to pay extra attention to other elements of an object, whether that's texture or something else? Well, the texture, I mean, for me, the texture and the sculpture has less to do with color than it does for marking time and, and just actually working. I feel like the reason that I've arrived at using so many different kinds of textures and the work is because it, it, because it takes so much time to create the textures and, and that, and I really love working. Like I feel most at balanced when I'm working. And so I think for that reason, often I create like textures and processes of sculpting that take a long time because I love working. So I get to work more. And then I think it sometimes in the end result, like, if you can create a texture by hand that almost defies how long it would take, then you actually stop thinking that it was made by a person and you have some or other other relationship to the object that you that maybe it just birthed itself or something. But but I, I do think that the to go in a slightly different direction of your question, I think that that I do think my deficiency in color like forces me to think more about color that and maybe the texture is a different issue in recent years you you've applied color to sculpture with dye and especially with gouache which is not typically in a sculptor's toolkit i mean liz larner i think used gouache in her her kind of rice paper covered sculptures from about 15 years ago but that was the only example i could think of why gouache well, I, you know, I, I don't want to go back too far with this, but like I started to make gouaches about maybe three or four years ago as a way to kind of draw, but to, to spend more time drawing. 
because the drawings that I make happen very quickly. And so I, I often, when, when I end up making a sculpture from a drawing, like every now and then, like, I will think that I was very attracted to the, to the thing. And then once I start sculpting it, I realize, oh, actually, maybe it's not such a great thing anyway. And I, so I wanted to be able to experience more with the, with the shapes and the forms before I actually committed to making them and, and wood. And so I started to make gouaches and it was a tr a attached to some other things like meditation practice and stuff like that. But originally I had, I had made some watercolors and I didn't really like the quality of the, the pigment. I wanted like more intense colors and uh, gouache is like almost a hundred percent pigment from my layman's understanding of, of paints and their activators. But I think it's just pigment and gum Arabic. And so it has this matte quality that I really like. And also the, 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 the colors are so insanely brilliant. And so I had the gouaches here in the studio. And so because I, because when you, the main color of the pieces is dye, but you can't have on one single shape, two dyes, like, because they bleed into each other, like a, like watercolor. And so often when they're within one part of a sculpture, if it needs to have two colors, I will paint the other, the, the lesser color with gouache. And so sometimes, sometimes I like the organic quality of the two colors bleeding together. And often like if it's like inside of a tube or, or it's something else, like I will use gouache, but I use gouache is, is very, very sparingly used in the sculptures. I try not to paint things anymore. After so many years of painting things, I, I really just decided that it was best if I could have the actual material show through. I have a question about two installations you've done in recent years, one, one called Organ, Organelle, and another called In and Out and In and Out Again. I'm, I'm pretty sure Organ, Organelle is individual sculptures that you installed in in, in an installation, <laughs> and and I and I assume In and Out is too. Are those installations made out of sculptures that you put together in attempt to suggest narrative? Well, often when I'm making an exhibition, even from the very beginning of my of my working, I often arrived at what I wanted to make at in an exhibition at one moment. So I had a lot of drawings, but I would go through the drawings and make edits. And yeah, maybe like it took a couple of weeks, like I would shuffle one sculpture out or shuffle another in. But normally when I begin the process of making an exhibition, like I know the cast of characters from the beginning of production. And so for that reason, I feel like almost all the bodies of work that I've made, even though they weren't maybe connected by mats on the ground, like the two installations that you highlighted, but I always thought of them as being like one body of work. If you look back at all the bodies of work that I've done, they've all pretty much been titled. And I think they've all kind of suggested that there were connections between the sculptures. At the same time, I feel like since I work on each sculpture individually, I feel that it can also hold its own as a discrete sculpture. The two installations that you described are, are do have a slightly different vibe and, and that in and out and in and out again, the blue one is, mm -hmm. was really focusedly created as an experience of looking at one sculpture that all kind of went together. Whereas Organ Organelle, I had always planned to show it on on the mats, but that it developed in a slightly more random way, and that and that it wasn't necessarily created for the theatrical effect in the very very beginning. I think the mats I had drawn I had drawn the mats like like maybe a quarter of the way into making the the work, whereas the other one was kind of conceived all at once. So in terms of a narrative where there might be a story or a series of acts to which the sculptures may refer, any reading a viewer finds like that is the viewer, not you. Oh, no, 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 sorry. I didn't mean, I must have not been articulate there. Definitely the two installations are ref definitely are kind of hinting at uh, narrative. I'm not sure if that's exactly the right word, but 
but definitely they're they have a directive and the directive is for both of those they're kind of actually funny enough kind of die they're kind of opposed and that the blue one is about the impermanence of the body as it's declining and the red installation is kind of more about the body and its full working capacity and its systems of respiration and nerve systems and circulation systems um ovulation yeah where and and that one in particular on the respiratory there's lots of flutes and and that installation and there's lots of kind of asides to breathing patterns and stuff like that and the blue the blue installation is is actually very inspired by an arnold excuse me arnold Brooklyn painting that i think the english title is death island he did a whole series of them and they're based on Greek mythology, uh, I think, about the the traveling of the body to the underworld as it passes and how it's guarded by this Sharon or or some sort of guard, which I guess is also probably an Egyptian mythology to begin with. Do you know the Boklin painting? Do you know the one I'm talking about? I don't, but we will find it and have it on. on I think the, the German <laughs> title is like Toten Isler or something like that. I don't know. There's one in the Met that's really great. It's very like kind of symbolist. Yeah, we will definitely have at least a couple versions of it on, on manpodcast.com because he changes it over the course of the 1880s. Yeah, yeah, and it's a fantastic painting. And I think I think a lot of things that I've worked on over all the years have been kind of inspired by my fear of dying and what happens to the body and all that. And I think that, that I've always been really fascinated from that by that painting since from an early age. The last thing I wanted to ask you about is orifices. A couple of weeks ago on the show, Joel Shapiro talked about his very formalist interest in orifices in sculpture and openings in sculpture. And a year or two ago, Jackie Windsor, when I raised orifices as a formal device, uh, laughed at me. I understand the the biological background of orifices in your work. We talked a little bit about that at the very beginning. Are you, were you interested in in the Shapiros and the Jackie Windsors and that kind of post-minimalist generation, which so often used orifices, orifices as a way of breaking up big boy minimalism? Wow. I mean, I do like both of their work. I mean, I think to me, my entryway, no pun intended, to the to the orifice is probably more like doubting Thomas. I know it's more orifice's wound, but you know, I, I, I. To me, I've always thought of the orifice as the, this kind of vulnerability, and that and that it's that it's the it's the point in which the outside becomes in, and that I I think I think of it in more psychoanalytical or at least psychological terms. That's always been I think my attraction to it. I mean, now that you're mentioning it, I can see that it's like a great formal trick to kind of off balance some of the more maybe phallic nature of the history of making objects. And of course, I respond to that. But I think to me, I think like the reason I bring up Doubting Thomas is I feel like there's a kind of mystery to the orifice, whereas the obviously the phallus is going outward and the orifice is going inward, but there's something hidden there's a mystery to it. And, and I think there's, I don't know, there's something like, is it real kind of quality like that, that I, that I respond to the temptation of tactility. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I mean, I'm also, I think all the body parts are obviously inspiring to me, but also the fluids I think are all always inspiring. And I think that I'm have a deep scatological obsession. And so I, so I think obviously that also is probably I was attracted to the source. And so I think that would probably be like on a on a very immature level is probably my or elemental level. I don't know what, what the Freudian word is for it, but I'm I'm obviously into that aspect of it. The kind of taboo side of the something taboo about the orifice. The the art historical word for it is probably Ken Price. <laughs> Matthew Rone, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm happy to have done this. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Ellipsis, on view April 15th through July 2nd. 
Ellipsis is a group exhibition that invites visitors to listen, look, touch, taste, and pause, celebrating the senses and embracing a range of individual and collective experiences. Spanning artistic practices and eras, Ellipsis brings out unexpected variations in perception, interaction, and awareness, featuring works by Roman Ondak, Janet Cardiff, Felix Gonzalez-Torres, Odilon Redon, John Bresland, Thilias Moss, and Claudia Rankine and John Lucas, in addition to a rotating selection of works by Doris Salcedo, Jean Arp, Ellsworth Kelly, Richard Serra, Getty Saboni, and Mark Rothko. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Welcome back. Now an excerpt from my 2015 conversation with Arlene Sheckett, who at the time was having a mid-career survey at the Institute of Contemporary Art Boston. The Frick Collection in New York has asked Sheckett to curate an installation of works from a promised collection of royal Meisen porcelain and to include her own work, made from molds Meisen made available to Sheckett when she was an artist-in-residence there, in the show. It's titled Porcelain, No Simple Matter, Arlene Sheckett, and the Arnhold Collection. It'll be at the Frick through April 2nd, 2017. So a few years ago, you ended up at the 300-year-old Meissen porcelain manufactory in southeastern Germany. Very eastern. Yeah, it's, it's due south of Berlin, basically. It's, it's 20 minutes south of Dresden. When you were there, you found yourself fascinated by Meissen's molds. You had previously kind of, well, not kind of, you'd previously played around with molds with a series of cast paper sculptures called Once Removed. Why were molds interesting and what about them, you know, did you, did you, did you transit that experience from the late 90s to seeing something in potential or whatever the right word is in Meissen's molds? That, that was one of the, that's been one of the interesting things of, of doing this 20-year survey and having to revisit bodies of work and see that at a very early period, I was already invested in that form of production, the mold. And I hadn't even thought of it when I worked at Meisen and decided to use the molds. So those, you know, paper vases were shown, in fact, with their molds. Each vase is sitting on top of the mold from which it was cast. And actually, the later series, the building series, also was very engaged with the mold because in that series, the way that thing was made was I painted on the inside of the mold rather than painting on the piece, pieces on the individual cast. And then... Each and then the pieces began as dark. After I paint the first casts of those pieces with liquid porcelain, they came out of the mold, and the surface painting became part of the structure. So, but it was very dark. And then instead of repainting the mold, I continued to cast them as if using a. I was thinking of them as prints, actually. So I was using this printmaking process of making ghosts and casting and casting and casting until the porcelain became white again. So, in fact, it's a whole cycle of dark to light. And then only when the cast became white did I repaint the inside of the mold. But that so so that is another engagement with the mold. As the, I mean, the mold is what I was focused on really more than what came out of the mold, you know, in effect. And when I went to Meissen, I mean, I was just given this opportunity and 
I had never worked really in porcelain because the, that casting series, I didn't really feel that I had worked in porcelain. I, as I said, I felt like I was doing this printmaking project in three dimensions. I went to the factory. I couldn't figure out what those figure those figures or what we in the West call figurines and they hate it being called figurines. So what the figures were about, I couldn't figure out what the whole eighteenth century aesthetic was about. Of course then I came to know it and embrace it, but I was just completely struck by the industrial architecture. The industrial architecture, I was in this 16th century town. The industrial architecture of the factory itself was fantastic and or fabulous to me. It was sort of brutalist, crazy place, plunked down into the 16th century town. And then, and then the place was filled with mold, so that even the tiniest little figure, the tiniest figure was requiring 25 molds to make because every little, every little pleat would be, have an undercut that necessitated making a separate mold. So there were just carts and carts and carts. The place was just filled with these molds and I found them to be, I mean, it was like Donald Judland sort of, you know, it was very, very beautiful. And people walked around in lab coats, white lab coats and white sneakers. And it it had this kind of purity that was at odds with these frou-frou, colorfully painted objects that were actually being released into the world. And my feeling was that I wanted to bring what is not being seen into the world to be seen because this is, you know, something mysterious and sort of insane and very, very interesting. Do you think of the Meissen pieces as as being or as being related to collage? I think that, yes, that a lot of my work relates to collage, cutting things apart, putting it back together, that a lot of the activity of being a sculptor could be seen as collage of, you know, parts pulled apart, parts put together, constructions. So in that, a construction is a kind of collage, yes. I'd like to ask a series of kind of quick hit questions about other artists that I wonder if if you've looked at, studied, thought about, tried to find some things from. We talked about Idol Idol earlier, and that's spelled I-D-L-E, I-D-O-L. When you started using clay, you know, seven or eight or, you know, whatever years ago, you started using forms that, to my eye, are, are kind of reminiscent of, of Peter Volkos and, and Ken Price. Were you looking at them, thinking about them? I was definitely not thinking about Peter Volkos. And I think I, I, think I, I really didn't understand anything about Peter Volkos. All I remembered vaguely was, like, plates with poked holes in them. I mean, now I'm way more interested in that, in his work, because I was introduced to it. I was in a show at the ICA Philadelphia, put together by Ingrid Schaffner and Janelle Porter at Dirt on Delight, and they actually paired my work with Peter Volkus. I was like, wow, are you kidding? I never saw these things. I never even thought of it, And that, but that was, you know, a wonderful pairing. I've talked to Glenn Adamson, and he was saying he's a Peter Volkus expert, and he was saying how he had been involved in suggesting that pairing. So I understand that completely, but I didn't know it before. And Ken Price, I love Ken Price, and I love all these artists, but I Ken Price was is somebody who is super refined, is about refinement, and to me. That's what I kept on seeing about Ken Price. Now I understand why people are seeing the form because we're both using voluptuous forms. We're, you know, interested in the comedic possibilities of the comedic and sexual possibilities of sculpture. But, you know, I was overwhelmed by his assault and drive towards perfection.
perfection. Perfection in the surfaces and perfection in the, and of course those surfaces are paint. So I, I didn't feel identified with that early on at all. Your studio is in, or one of your studios is in Woodstock, New York. And if I, if my, I, I think it's quite near where Philip Guston's studio was. And I often think I see Gustonian forms, if that's a thing, kind of made three-dimensional in your work, such as in, you know, because of the wind from 2010, which looks like an early squiggly Guston abstraction with some air blown into it and then pushed around a bit. That's interesting. I never thought of that particular one as Gustonian, but I like it. Yeah. So is he is he important or? Yeah, I mean, I think he's entirely important and. Maybe one when maybe one of the reasons that I ended up in Woodstock even I mean I, it's not that I sought out Woodstock because I knew Gustin was there but by chance what before we had the house we rented for one month a house that turned out to be across the street from where he lived and had his studio and that's when it you know clicked into place like oh my God. He, uh, Philip Gustin was here because, and honestly, I never wanted to be in Woodstock. I mean, when it was just we got offered this house, and I said, "I'll be anywhere but Woodstock." Because what is this town? What is this town filled with? You know, old hippies, and I'm just I don't want any part of this. But then, you know, digging digging deeper into it, the richness of that place beginning with Gustin and then, of course, scratching the surface and, and understanding that at the turn of the century, there was uh, this place, Purdcliffe, that was a utopian arts community, and then the Maverick, where John Cage did his great 433 concert, and, you know, and, and uh, it's a place of culture that Gustin was and drawn to, and that then I became drawn to, but my studio then is literally, I, I got a place literally over the hill, like you'd have to walk over a mountain to get there, but it's directly over the hill from his. And when I first started to work in Woodstock, I just started to spill, these forms started to spill out of me and I decided these like head-like forms and that surprised me and as in so-and-so and so-and-so and on and on and they, I you know, I hadn't anticipated that but one day I walked into the studio and I saw it in pro I saw one of the forms the big fat squat one in profile which I hadn't seen and I thought nobody else is going to see this but I see this Gustin head and instead of shying away from it or distancing myself from it I felt tenderness towards it and wanted to honor that great influence. And so I ended up glazing it pink just to seal the deal for the rest of the world. And so I will continue to talk about it for the rest of my life in that way. Uh, you know, I mean, it, you know, it was important, important moment. And I, I wanted, there's a coyness, you know, one can have a coyness about source material and in in that, and certainly in that case, I have open arms and, and really I'm happy to embrace it. And I think he is the god of so much that is very real and wonderful in what has happened in painting in particular and, you know, in the last 40 years. Does Franz Vest interest you? Yeah. I mean, I think that Franz Vest is a great artist. I love, I guess, it was the, the hand stuff. And when I was doing the Buddhas, I mean, those that using the paint skins that I happen to have in my studio, I don't think right away, but maybe sometime early on, I saw, I knew about and saw one of his pieces I can't remember what they're called at this moment, but that one handles, you know, made by hand. The adapter. Yeah. 
and then handled. And I just thought, oh, that's so cool. And so, yeah, that form that is both abstract and representational at the same time, I'm definitely a sucker for that. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.